this summer we're studying through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I know that we have the words on the screen most of the time, but anytime we're studying through a book of the Bible like this, it's a great time to get in the habit of bringing your own actual Bible, because through your underlining and highlighting and taking notes, at the end of this summer, you will really have a great grasp of what God is trying to say to us through this book, uh, much better than you would um, if you just look at the words on the screen. But if you forgot it today, they will be up there, so no worries. We've made it to chapter 5, and today we're going to focus on only the first few verses of chapter 5. Everything that we're going to do today and say today is, is mostly about trying to make a huge deal of who God is, the greatness of who he is. And to never, even without meaning to, make little of him. Let's look at verse 1. I'm going to get right into this uh, passage. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Previously, a few weeks ago in chapter 3, we were encouraged to fear God. And the motivation behind that fear was because of God's sovereignty. Okay, it's God's sovereignty, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everything. Are you with me? Today's section, uh, fearing God, is motivated by his holy and righteous character because of who he is. The writer here is targeting the well-meaning person. Did you hear when he said they may not even know that they're doing wrong? The, the person who loves to sing songs shows up cheerfully enough to church on Sunday mornings, Right? but listens kind of with half an ear and never quite gets around to what he's volunteered to do for God. This man has forgotten where and who he is, and most importantly, he has forgotten who God is. Sometimes when you've been a believer or a, at least a churchgoer for a long period of time, just like anything else in our life, things can become desensitized to what we're actually doing. You understand what I'm trying to say? Not that you come into church on purpose to belittle God. Just sometimes we might forget out of habit why, why we're even showing up on Sundays and, and what it is that we're doing when we sing songs like we just got done singing. The psalmist in Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. That might, that might mean his greatness is unmeasurable. His greatness is unknown. There's no way that we could gather 
all the greatest minds in the world together and try to come up with what words really mean how great God is. It's unsearchable, so there's no point in even trying to figure it out. He is great. Uh, one of my favorite worship leaders, his name is Bob Coughlin, and he wrote a book, and in that book about this verse in Psalm, he says, David shows the appropriate starting point for worship. It involves thinking about and magnifying and responding to the glory and splendor of God. God is not small. He is great. Magnifying and cherishing his greatness is at the heart of true biblical worship. One of my favorite old songs is called Holy Is Our God. A couple of brothers named Tim and John Newfeld wrote this. And part of the words say this, fall before your maker, every creature fall. Let your heart be still and know that he is God. Tremble at the feet of him upon the throne. Tremble men and angels before him alone. Holy is our God, wonderful is he. Holy is the Lord Almighty. The one person in the universe for us to fear is our God. Not only are we to only fear him, not only are we to fear him, but we're not to fear others because of who our God is. So leading up to this point, you know, we've heard all of these things that Saul has been, been saying, you know, this is vanity, this is the wind, chasing the wind, this is vanity, this is chasing the wind, whether it was pleasure or money or work or business or or whatever it was, he he came to the point that everyone ended up in the grave, and so what did it matter? And and all these things, and I think that his point is to drive us away from the world, and then today we're going to see him showing us that he wants to drive us toward God and our duty. That we would not walk in the way of the world or depend on the world's wealth, but we would walk by God's law and depend only upon him. Let our disappointments in the creature turn our eyes to the creator. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful for your word, and we want to tread lightly this morning as we talk about your greatness. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of who we are. Show us what it means to be true worshipers of the one true and almighty God today. Convict our hearts where there are things that we are still holding back from you. Amen. I want to look again at verse 1. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be careful, he says. Address worship with a solemn pause, if you will. Take time to compose yourself for what you're about to do. Work hard to keep your thoughts on God and, and from wandering all over the place about other things. Let him be the object that we fix our affections on rather than things that um, the world so uh, quickly is wanting us to, to turn our affections to those things, right? All the things that we see throughout the week. I mean, millions of advertisements throughout the week going into our brains telling us, look here, look here, look here. He's reminding us to fix our affections on the one true God. Better to come in slowly, approaching God reverently, to listen to him rather than barging in kind of half-heartedly 
thinking that just your presence on a Sunday morning and maybe the gift you bring is what would make you righteous. Now, the word fool here is pretty brutal. No one wants to be called a fool, but to be casual with God is evil. It's a sin. It won't go unpunished. And just in case that we are tempted to write this off as kind of Old Testament harshness, the New Testament will equally take us to task with warnings of treating lightly what is holy. Look at Matthew chapter 23. And if you don't quite get there, it'll be on the screen, and you can just write this down to go back to it later. Matthew 23, verse 16. So this is New Testament now. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears of the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. No amount of emphasis on grace, you know, just saying, well, but Jesus came and it's all good now. He forgives us for whatever. But no amount of emphasis on grace can justify taking liberties with God. For the very concept of grace demands gratitude. And gratitude cannot be casual or it's not true gratitude. Has anyone ever been thanked in a way that didn't really feel like the people were really thankful for what you had done? <laughs> Don't let the time that you've been with God create numbness in your relationship with him. This is a danger. As I'm reading this and preparing all week, I had to keep asking myself, you know, how do I enter into the house of the Lord? What is my mindset? Remember, this is Solomon. He's the one that created the temple, right? I mean, he had a big investment in what was going on. And now we do know that, that since Jesus has come in to live with us, the temple of the Lord is where he resides in me. And that not necessarily these four walls mean anything special, right? The same thing. What makes this special? The walls that because it's a church and it has a sign or the God who is the God of this church family, right? But there's something to it when we come as a church family and we come to worship. And since we know that he resides in us, this isn't only a Sunday morning topic, but it's how we approach him throughout the week. How do I wake up in my preparation to spend my day with him? What does that time look like? What's my mindset? Is it rushed to hurry to get to the world? Or is it in a pause to sit and rest in my Savior's presence before I have to go into the world? Let's go on to verse 2. He continues on with his encouraging us to be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
We speak to God and about God in a few, maybe even more than a few different ways, right? We pray. We sing songs like we have today. We talk about God sometimes to our family or to our friends or to our coworkers. Sometimes we use God's name in a way that um, my mom and dad would say, that's using his name in vain, and we don't do that. We make commitments. We make promises. And he's saying, hold on here. Be careful with your mouth. What we utter before God must come from the heart and therefore should not be rash with our mouth. Another way to say it is the words of our mouth must always be the product of the meditation of our hearts. Our thoughts are like words to God, right? You ever thought about that? If I think something bad about you, you have no idea that I did that. But if I think something, God knows my thoughts. So my thoughts are like words to God, and my words are really meaningless because he knows the heart behind my words. So if I say something with my heart in worship, if I sing that my chains are gone, I've been set free, but in my heart I believe, man, what would really set me free is another $2 million so that I could feel good about my you know, peace of mind, then the words that I sang are meaningless. They knew about this in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 29, it says, don't come near to me with your mouth and honor me with your lips like the, like the religious people do. You just come to me with your mouth and honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far away from me. And Jesus, he quoted that verse in Matthew again. He said to the Pharisees, you come near to me with your mouth. You honor me with your lips so that everyone around you and hearing you will think that you're very special and religious and loves Jesus really a lot. This is the re- same kind of thing in these days as the person who stands up in the middle of the section and sings the loudest because he wants everyone around him to think that he really loves Jesus, which is great if it matches his heart. But if it doesn't, then his words are just like the wind to God. Does that make sense? We don't talk to God like we talk to one another. Now this is, I had a hard time going back and forth with this this week because I've been told a lot in my life that Jesus loves me and he's my... My heavenly father, I should be able to just talk to him, which is good. But we also need to be reminded here in chapter 5, he says, God is in heaven. You're on earth. God is not like my other friends. Right? As, as much as I want everyone to, to, to have this great relationship and, and, uh, with one another, and I might say things to my friends that I in no way should say to my God, or I should not approach a conversation with one of my best friends, the way I approach a conversation with God because of who he is. This is a reminder of how big he is and how small we are in comparison to him. God is in heaven where he reigns in glory forever. Do any of your friends reign in glory forever? Some of them might think that they do. (laughs) He is surrounded by a multitude of angels worshiping him all the time. I mean... We think that the music we play on Sunday is good. And we're like, man, God's going to love this time. You know, I mean, this, we picked some good songs and we practiced and, and we got good singers today. It's going to be great. And the place is full, so it's louder than normal. Can you imagine? God is being worshipped 24-7 by angels, multitudes of them. He's not really impressed. 
But we like to think that he's probably impressed with us. This is just a reminder of how great the God is that we're approaching. How great he is that we're trying our best to worship. This isn't saying we shouldn't sing. I'm not saying that. But just a reminder how we begin that, that starting point. Like you said in that book, I love that. The starting point of where we worship God is to remind ourselves of, of his splendor and glory. He's in heaven. We're on earth. We're just a footstool of his throne. We're sinful. We in no way deserve favor from him or to be able to even commune with him, but we can. And so we must do so in a very respectful and deliberate way. I think that's where he's pointing us to. Now, this doesn't condemn all long prayers. You know, this is another thing that they had problems with in, the, in this time was that people would stand up and pray forever because they thought that if I pray for 10 or 15 minutes, you know, everyone around me will think that my connection to the Almighty is greater than theirs because they don't know they can't pray as long as I can. That kind of prayer, he's condemning that kind of prayer. Jesus does the same thing in the New Testament when he talks to the Pharisees, the guys that would stand out in the streets and try to, to become you know, famous by saying these long prayers and yelling real loudly to get everyone's attention to look at them. But it doesn't condemn all long prayers. We know Jesus prayed all night long to his Father. We know as Christians we're encouraged to pray without ceasing. But this is targeting the heart behind what we go, by, what, what we go to do, checking our hearts and, 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 and making sure that... Um, our thoughts on him are of a lofty, a lofty thought, not low, not, not going in out of habit, not, not sneaking in that 60-second devotional or whatever that book is called. I mean, seriously, come on. So we have to be careful, guarding our steps. Let's look at verse 4. So if you haven't been convicted yet, you might be now. Because I know that as I studied this over and over again this week, I kept thinking of all the things that I have said that I would do, and yet I've fallen short. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Have you ever told God, God, if you'll just do this, I'll do that? It happens all the time in the movies, but... Maybe you've actually tried that before. God, if you, if you just somehow wipe out this debt, I promise to give 10% for the rest of my life. Or God, if you'll just get this guy kicked out somehow so I can have his place, then I promise to be really good with my new position and, and share Jesus. God, if you'll just, if you'll just you know, let my team win this time. I promise that I will, you know, be the most devout believer. God, if you'll just put the sun down and let me sleep two more hours, I promise to go to church next Sunday. <laughs> Whatever it is. 
Solomon wishes to keep people from uttering rash or meaningless words during the worship of God. And in particular, he has in mind the careless taking of a religious vow as an act of devoutness. Sometimes you might come in on a Sunday morning. And, and, and again, remember who this is targeting. This is targeting the, the well-meaning believer, the well-meaning Christian. You might come in and go, man, they picked my favorite two songs and the Holy Spirit was here. You know what? I'm, I'm just going gonna, gonna to commit to waking up at 4 a.m. for the rest of my life for the next, and spend two hours in prayer before I ever start anything else the rest of the day. I'm committing to do that because I know that that would be good. And then Monday morning comes, and you're like, oh, yeah. God, you know, probably two hours to start my day. I probably need some sleep. And, and that's what he says. Your, your excuses before the messenger will just sound stupid. Okay, so don't make a vow that's so, so big and great and that, that you can't keep up with it. But it happens even when we don't mean to, when we sing certain words and songs. Have you ever realized that, that words come up on these screens or you know the words in your heart because you've been singing them your whole life? And, and you, if you would stop to think about what you're saying to God in our times of worship. I had to think this week, how many times have I stood at a microphone and sang things that in my heart I truly wasn't ready to commit to? By taking a vow, a worshiper would promise in the Old Testament maybe to perform a specific act, such as making a sacrifice. Now, if God would respond favorably to a particular petition, he would go through with it. But since making a sacrifice was costly, people often would look for some excuse to avoid following through with what they had said that they would do. And I wonder if maybe that still happens sometimes today. Because we vow to do something that might be costly and then when we get to that point of time to pay up, we go, man, that's a little bit more costly than what I meant for it to be when I made the commitment in the first place. When we think about how great the God is that we're making these commitments to, our excuses start to sound very silly. Now, as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus, we've already made our vow. Have we? When you asked God to come into your heart, when you said, I really don't want to go to hell, what did you commit to? You didn't just commit to showing up at church on Sundays, right? Hopefully the pastor didn't tell you that's all you had to do. You didn't just commit to giving 10% of your money, did you? What did you commit to? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, your whole being? What'd you commit to? Huh? Did you forget? What did you commit to? That he would be what of your life? Lord, that you would give him your whole what? Heart, your whole life? Did you commit that? Did you anyone say, God, I'll, I'll take heaven if I can give you half my heart? Did anyone commit to that? Of course not. So as a believer, we've made our vow. We committed to give all that we have, all that we are. And how many times do we go back on that vow throughout our normal daily week 
and we say, well, well, maybe just not this time. I mean, I, yeah, I know I committed everything, but, you know, we, we've got a really busy month or, you know, we have tournaments every weekend or, or you know, that the money's kind of tight this weekend. Well, he, he doesn't really like me anyways or she says something bad about me behind my back. We have excuses, you know, we can come up with excuses for reasons not to keep our commitment to God when we made that vow in the beginning, asking for salvation. God, I'll do this if I don't have to go to hell. God, I'll do this if you'll do that. You might not have said it just like that, but that's the commitment we've made. So as you go about your life and you realize that there's something, a piece of you, a part of your heart, a piece of your life that you've not yet given to him, what should we do? When you hear a sermon or a song or, or you're in prayer and you read a scripture and you go, oh, that's talking about something that I've been holding back from God and I vowed to give my all to him, well, the only thing that would make sense would be to give that part also right? That's what conviction is called. That's what uh, sanctification is called. That's where we learn to continue to give him the pieces of our life as we go about our life that we had not yet given to him. We had maybe not realized we had not given it to him, but then someone pointed it out. You haven't given that to him yet. You don't say, well, since I didn't give it to him to begin with, he must not really need it. I think I'll hold on to it. That doesn't make sense. A great example is if I were to give you a chess game, you like the game chess? I like the game chess mainly because my dad was the only person in the world that I knew that knew all the rules, and he taught me the rules, and I felt like it was neat that I knew the rules to chess. And me and my dad could play chess. None of my friends got it. They wanted to play checkers. <laughs> but if I were to give you a chess game, a chess set that I had that was real special to me, if I were to give that to you as a gift... And I said, this is really special to me because my dad gave this chess set to me, and it's, it's really neat. It comes from another country. It's old. Um, the only problem is I'm missing one of the little pieces, but it's no big deal. Just put a checker down and just pretend like that's that piece. And then months later, I'm cleaning out my home, and what do I find? I find that piece. What should I do with it? The only thing that would make sense would be for me to bring that to you and say, here's that piece. I found it. I've already given you the whole chess set. Why, what, what good would that one piece do me? Why would I not feel so glad to, to finish the gift? As a believer, we go, we know, I've given my life to God. He's Lord, King, in charge of all that I do. And then I realize I've been, I've been holding back this thing called, called anger or jealousy or coveting or lust or whatever it is. When I realize that, the only thing that makes sense is for me to say, God, I forgot. I found this, and, and I told you I would give you everything. Here it is. When I realize I'm being selfish with my time or my fi finances or my talents, and I realize it, then I need to say, God, I realized I had not given you everything, and here's another piece. Here it is. You're king. You're lord. You are master. Take it. Don't hold those things back. We've already vowed to give him our heart. When he says, hey, Brian, you're holding on to that. 
When he says, Brian, I want you to do this. I want you to go here. I want you to sell that. I want you to give this. My answer is to be, yes, Lord. It only makes sense for, you to, for me to give you that part of me also because I've already tried my best to give you everything. This passage starts out with three words, guard your steps. I say to my kids all the time, watch where you're going. Watch where you're going. Don't run into stuff. Don't run into people. Don't walk out into a parking lot. Watch where you're going. He says, guard your steps. Think about where you're going when you approach this great God of the universe. Remember the vow you made to him when you said, I would give you my all. Be careful with how we speak to him in our prayers and in our singing, in our commitments, even in our protests. It's okay to protest. He can handle it. But be careful and remember who we're speaking with. Careful. Watch your steps. Guard your steps. So some questions for you today as we close up. How big is your view of God? I have to believe that in the beginning when we're introduced to him, our view of him is ginormous. I mean, just ask any of those kids how big God is. When we're first told about God, I mean, you can't even ask like a normal question at dinner, right? Because we say, well, you know, we can't do that. And like, what do you mean you can't do that? God can do anything, you know, that ask a kid how big God is. But for sometimes, as we grow as adults, all the things of the world and our knowledge and the things that we've learned in our experiences, we begin to get really realistic about how we do things and how the world works. And, and sometimes our view of God is not as great as it used to be. And sometimes what Solomon is saying is that that turns into sometimes irreverent speaking to him or of him. When you talk to God, sing to him, talk about him, do you do it in a reverent manner? Do your words match your heart? Don't let the words that you say outrun your heart. Because God knows your heart. Our thoughts are like words to him, remember. And our words are just like the wind to him if they don't match our heart. Are you keeping your vow to give your whole life to Jesus? As we've been talking today and reading these verses, are those, those, are those things coming to your mind that maybe you've been holding back? Do you not even want to answer that question because you're afraid that that means you'll have to take another step of commitment? What's he asking you to do? What's he asking you to stop doing? Where is he asking you to go? To give? that you're having a hard time with answering yes, Lord, to those questions. That's the thing he wants to deal with you today. That's the things that he wants to deal with me today. When I'm not quick to say yes, Lord, there, there's something deep in my soul, in my relationship with him that's, that's not quite working the way it's supposed to. And he wants to deal with that with me.
And on the flip side, when I'm quick to say yes, Lord, the blessings are immeasurable. Living in a way that gives him our whole life and in obedience to him all the time. Responding yes, Lord, to whatever it is he calls us to. The life he promises for those believers is bigger than anything that we could be holding on to that is of this world. He's in heaven. He said, God's in heaven. He's in heaven. You're on earth. Not even any of the good stuff on earth is as good as the stuff in heaven. We're just here. Nothing like there. And he's saying, just just listen. Guard your steps when you come to me. And I'm going to pour out all this love on you. He's promised it so many times. Old Testament to new. Every story in this one story is about his love for us. If we would only just make him the one true Lord of our life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so, so, so grateful for all that you've done for us, but even so also for who you are. That as high and lifted up as you are, that you would stoop down to our level to love us, to forgive us, to show us grace day after day. How many times have we let you down? And how many times have you picked us back up? Even when you are the one that we've offended. Father, I pray that our view of you would be so great, as big as we can at least imagine. That we would worship you in truth, in spirit. That we would come into your presence slowly, even timidly. But at the same time, boldly knowing that everything that we've done has been paid for by the Jesus Christ, your son. I pray that you would encourage us to keep our vows. And most importantly, the vow of making you Lord of our life, our entire life. Everything that we are, everything that we have. Show us today, Lord, what we're holding back from you. And encourage us to give you that peace as well. It's the only thing that makes sense. Jesus, allow our love for you to shine bright to those around us. Allow our speech of you to always be in reverence of who you are. And for us to never make lightly you who are holy. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.